Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Tarek Kassam. Tarek is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Celsius Therapeutics. Celsius emerged on the scene in May of 2018 with a $65 million Series A financing led by Third Rock Ventures. It was built on the conviction that single-cell analysis will shed light on new targets for the treatment of cancer, autoimmunity, and other diseases. Single-cell analysis is one of the big trends in biology. As I wrote a couple years ago on Timmerman Report, whatever layer of information being looked at, genomics, proteomics, metabolomics, molecular activity comes into sharper resolution with single-cell analysis than with traditional techniques that depend on information averaging from samples. By looking carefully at single cells gathered from patients with a given disease, Celsius is wagering that it will find abnormalities that can't be seen by looking at just one particular type of biological information, like gene mutations. Four years after its debut, Celsius has a lead program being prepped for clinical trials in 2023. It's an antibody directed against TREM1 for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. The company also has a partnership with France-based Servier to discover new targets for the treatment of colorectal cancer. Tarek comes to this challenge with an interesting set of experiences. He's a physician by training, got early experience on Wall Street, and then made his way into biopharmaceutical business development. He's drawing on all of those experiences now in thinking about how to build a company that can take these enabling technologies and apply them in a clever way to help people who need help. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. Now, please join me, Tarek Kassam, on the long run. Tarek Kassam, welcome to the long run. I am very glad to be here, Luke. I've always thought that this was the mark of making it in the industry. So uh, I feel like this is a major milestone. <laughs> Getting featured on the long run? <laughs> yes, yes. I remember when you started this. And um, uh, uh, what, about four or five years ago? And yeah. uh, Michael Gilman, who was my boss at the time, was, was one of your guests. And he's a fantastic raconteur. But I remember hearing him and thinking, man, one day I'd love to do that too. So here we are. Mike Gilman was on at JP Morgan one year, as I recall. And uh, I meant to cover uh, everything in one hour. And I think we got about one third of the way through all the questions I wanted to ask. So I, I need to have him back. Yes, he, I'm sure, will be happy to make a return visit. 
Great. Well, Tark, well, thanks for joining me today. Uh, we got a lot to cover. The uh, Your story right now with Celsius Therapeutics uh, and, and using single cell analysis for drug discovery, I think is a really interesting approach that people are going to want to hear about. But let's just start off with a little bit about you. Uh, where are you from? So I am from Toronto, Canada. That is where I was born. Um, and I lived there through high school. I went to college in the United States and then back to Toronto for medical school. Toronto. So uh, but, uh, did your parents uh, immigrate from there or were they had they been there a long time? Yeah. So my parents, um, so my, my parents' family, my family, um, originally from East Africa, Tanzania, but originally, originally from India. Um, and so we're sort of persecuted their way out of India uh, into East Africa a few generations ago. And then uh, uh, were persecuted their way out of East Africa uh, in the 1960s. And so um, that diaspora of people moved all over the, the world to the UK, the United States, and Canada, a large population in Canada. And so my parents moved as part of that. My dad is now retired, uh, but was an architect. And so Toronto, Canada was a great place to be an architect in the 1970s and 1980s as the city grew dramatically. And as you can imagine, um, new building is great if you're an architect. So, so their, their original background is, yeah, Indian, uh, African, uh, but uh, Toronto since childhood. And uh, not to dwell on the persecution, but um, with a name like Tarek, I'm thinking Muslim. Yeah, that's right. So, that's right. So, so how, what what happened? So this is um, the the sort of long history of uh, uh, Muslims in India. My parents and my family is Ismaili Muslim, and so there's a, a subgroup of Muslims who um, who moved to set up camp uh, in uh, in Africa in I guess that was the late 19th century. So escaping persecution in India. And uh, so they came to Toronto in the in the sixties. That's right, in the late nineteen sixties. And when were you born? I was born in the early to mid nineteen seventies. Uh, so I am I am a true Gen Xer, fully Canadian. <laughs> and 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 what um what what was your uh, uh, neighborhood like? What was the uh, kind of social environment? So it was interesting. It was kind of a mix. Like so. I grew up in a um, pretty homogeneously white neighborhood when I was a kid. And I was the like only brown guy around. I also was very book smart, um, which was not really a combination for a whole lot of social success. But I ended up, um, it ended up working out really well. I ended up going to a fantastic private all boys high school which sounds like a dystopian environment, but it was actually excellent. It was intellectually challenging. It was um, academically very competitive. And there were boys there from all kinds of backgrounds. And through that, I think I really got to um, explore things that I later on became very interested in and have ultimately made a career out of. So you said your dad was an architect. Um, how did you land on science or, or when did that happen? So it's interesting. When I was, um, when I was a little kid in like grade school, I thought I was really interested in science, but that was just because I was good at remembering things without actually really trying. 
And so I could remember a lot of facts. Um, when I got to junior high school and then high school um, and was actually confronted with the realities of the scientific method, I didn't really take to it right away. I was more interested at that point in the arts. And so I was really interested in writing. At, some, at various points, I entertained a, 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 maybe a career in journalism. Um, you know, you can tell me later on whether you think that would have been a good idea or not. Uh, but then what happened was, was that I was in high school. I decided I was going to do something that was going to be most likely humanities oriented, forced to take a science class. I took a 10th or 11th grade environmental science class, and I just got hooked. It was so interesting to me. Um, and and the, that combination of things that are technical but then also have some kind of tangible reality that you can see, and in many cases, aesthetically see, like in, you know, uh, natural beauty, that got me really, really interested in science. And so that's what actually put me down the path of thinking, well, maybe I should try to find a career where I can do something um, that involves science, um, but that also I can build a, you know, a real, like a career out of. And so that's what actually put me on the path to thinking about medical school. So it wasn't any longer about memorization. It was about looking at the world and wondering, asking questions. And there was a method here for, you know, gathering data, analyzing data, uh, in reaching conclusions. That's right. <laughs> it was a right. way of thinking. That's right. It's, it's, it's the way of thinking, but it was also the understanding. Just remembering random things is not the same thing as understanding something. And, and understanding something in depth oftentimes means actually being able to explain it in a way that is clear and straightforward. And that maybe is, is, is the link then for me between that interest that I had in the humanities and also the interest in the sciences, which was being able to, to tell stories about it and being able to describe it, um, being able to see the elegance in the science and talk about it. That to me was something that, that you know, up until that point, science seemed kind of dry. But once I started realizing that you could link those two worlds, then things got interesting. And you thought being a doctor would be a good way to fuse these things? Uh, actually treat, treating patients, like, you know, understanding what's going wrong with them and uh, coming up with a diagnosis, a plan, uh, and uh, and communicating it to them. Yeah, like an applied science, right? So, So at the intersection of dealing with um, you know, humankind, and also dealing with the science. And that's, I think, one of the things that's actually really defined many of the career choices I've made and where I've ended up. It's at these interesting intersections of different things, like the intersection of science and finance, the intersection of, um, you know, management and biotechnology. Uh, that's where I think I, I tend to enjoy things. And so that's why, for me, uh, a medical career seemed like a really, really great idea. Okay, so where'd you go to medical school? I went to medical school at the University of Toronto. And what was that like? What, what kind of doctor did you kind of just think you might want to be? So I really enjoyed medical school. And I didn't not become a doctor because I had some kind of bad experience or like I harmed someone or something like that. It was, I, I, the thing for me was in medical school, I really enjoyed the clinical side. I really enjoyed the science side. I got along great with my classmates. Um, it was a fantastic experience. Going into medical school, 
out of uh, my undergraduate education, in my undergraduate education, I had started to develop an interest in business. I think that that came from, an, uh, it was started because my parents had sold their house and needed to understand where and how to invest the money. And so helping them out, I started trying to learn about investing. And I found it really interesting. Again, something that's at the intersection of science, like um, theory, but also practice. So when I went to medical school, I started, I was interested in business. Um, I didn't really know how to um, actually act on that. So while I was in medical school, I started doing research projects on healthcare management and healthcare information technology with some of the, the key leaders at the hospitals that I was stationed in. And my thinking was, okay, in the best case scenario, this could be something pretty cool that I could maybe do as a career. And in the worst case scenario, maybe it's just something kind of interesting that I worked on that I can talk about when I do my residency applications, right? And that actually might give me a bit of a distinctive advantage because, well, probably not, of other, not a lot of other people are doing that. And people who are heads of departments of surgery, for example, which I was really interested in, um, likely have to think about management issues a lot. So, hey, this could be kind of cool. But then it stuck. I really started enjoying the, the management and business side of healthcare. And that got me thinking about maybe making a career at that intersection. And so you, uh, how did you make the move kind of out of medicine? Because I, I imagine that was maybe a, a, a difficult decision after putting in all the work to become a doctor. It was definitely a difficult decision. However, one of the things that assuaged the pain was the fact that I knew that if it didn't go well for the first year or two, there was likely a path for me to be able to go back. So it, it didn't feel like a completely permanent decision. Now, of course, I think I'm so far down the road. I, I don't think you'd want to let me near a patient or a medical facility. Um, but so I so what I did was I did more and more work on management and business while I was in medical school. For one of my elective blocks in fourth year, I helped a merchant bank set up a healthcare VC fund. Um, and then I realized, you know, I just want to pursue this. So I never applied for the residency match. I um, found employment opportunities to join after I graduated from medical school and then just started when I graduated. Um, they thought that I was crazy at my medical school, though there were three others of us in our graduating class who um, did some kind of business uh, out of medical school of which, of the four of us, two have returned to medical practice and two of us are still going today. Well, this was around the time when some schools, I don't know about Canada, but th there were places here that were doing kind of combined, well, MD-PhD and MD-MBA programs. Yeah, these were the early days of the MD-MBA program. Actually, I had applied to the McGill MD-MBA program out of college. It was the first year of that program's existence and I got turned down, I got rejected because I didn't have enough business experience. I got into the med school, but I didn't get into the business side and you had to be able to get into both, so. <laughs> but you probably had more business experience than most of the applicants. <laughs> well, coming out, of, uh, coming out of undergraduate, not a heck of a lot. But, uh, but it was, yeah, it was the early days of people realizing that, that, that there was a career path at the intersection of medicine and business. And, um, you know, it's, 
I, I see more and more of it now. And even now, like, so when I was in medical school, this was just completely anathema, right? Like who would do that, right? And also, I mean, I do feel a little bit of residual guilt here because yes, the you know province of Ontario and the nation of Canada did subsidize my medical education to, to a large extent. Um, but now, for example, there's entire entrepreneurship modules for physicians at the University of Toronto Medical School. And in fact, later this evening, I am kicking off the entrepreneurship and healthcare lecture series there, uh, where I'm going to talk about my own entrepreneurial journey uh, and um, how we consider success and failure in this regard. So it's, uh, I- I'm very glad the world has come around to this. Uh, and I'm, I'm giving the lecture that I wish I had received when I was in medical school. Well, uh, like it or not, physicians do learn at some point that uh, medicine is a business and uh, it, it may help a bit to uh, become a little more savvy some, at some point along the way, hopefully earlier. Uh, definitely. Later. Though I got to say, in the Canadian healthcare system, you're very well isolated from that up until a point. I think that realization probably occurs a little bit later for the physicians in the Canadian healthcare system than it does in the U.S. Okay. Well, now your career then... Um, you know, if I kind of look at this at a high level, it seems to break into kind of three chapters here. There's Wall Street, there's business development and pharma, and then there's startup land. <laughs> uh, can you can you start me up the, uh, your your move to Wall Street? Um, what did you uh, where did you go, and uh, what was the the main experience? What did you learn there? Oh, I learned a ton, and that was a fantastic experience. And and so. <clears throat> Out of med school, I actually started working for a healthcare IT company. It was a startup. And um, startup didn't do that well. This was the year 2001. And um, you remember the dot-com crash, the first of several crashes that I've lived through in my career? Oh, yeah. So that company ended up not getting the VC funding that it expected to. And so our original plan was we were going to build this network that was going to tie together clinical information from all the hospitals in Ontario and actually create um, uh, a shared information network, which is an idea that was way ahead of its time, right? And even now we're struggling to do. Um, But that venture capital uh, funding fell through, and the company then, in order to survive, moved to a model of being a um, more like a, a consulting firm for hospital systems implementation. So that's what I started and I started doing out of med school, helping hospitals put in place Cerner, you know, patient care systems, which was not all that exciting for me. And so, but the opportunity came to move to Menlo Park to work for CIBC, which at the time was the most prominent Canadian investment bank in the United States, uh, to do investment banking for small and mid-cap biotech companies. And that seemed really exciting, except I couldn't name a single biotechnology company, nor could I accurately define what investment banking was, nor could I actually read a profit and loss statement. (laughs) But it was California. But it was California, and it was the U.S., and it was like on Sand Hill Road, which seemed really exciting. So how do, you know, this sounds just great. I'm going to do this. So, you know, this is, and now this is 2002. Um, Investment banks are in retrenchment mode, though somehow I managed to get this job, actually, because a friend of mine, that other friend of mine who uh, from University of Toronto Medical School had that job, 
changed jobs within the bank and recommended me for that job in Menlo Park. So I'm like, okay, I got to try this, right? Anyway, I get there. I, you know, have this tiny studio apartment. Um, There was no signing bonus because, well, this was not the era when people were giving signing bonuses. So I had no furniture. I moved with a very small amount of money in my pocket. And I was immediately thrown into the investment banking mill, uh, you know, working 80 plus hour weeks, doing things like creating pitch books and making photocopies at four in the morning. And it was, uh, it was challenging. But at the same time, I learned a ton. Um, I, and I found myself doing things like actually wanting to go to meetings on days that I had designated as holidays with companies that I thought were interesting because I thought what they were doing was so exciting. I remember once there was a company that has long failed that uh, was working on an HIV vaccine. And I, had, I was scheduled to be traveling that day and I decided to delay my trip just so I could go to this meeting because what I thought they were working on was so cool. Uh, and that really got me thinking that, man, I should just, I really need to double down on this stuff because this is just super exciting. Yeah, yeah. You got exposed to like a, a classic Wall Street experience. You get a variety of companies. You could see the breadth now. <laughs> you went from not knowing a single company to knowing about a whole lot of companies and a lot of different technologies and different applications for different disease areas. What are the key questions in these disease areas? So now, like, it sounds like the world's unfolding in front of you. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that you, you got to see um, successful companies and less successful companies. You got to see what companies did when they were trying to dig themselves out of holes that they were in, either due to circumstance or their own digging. Um, you got to see what good management teams looked like. You got to see what not so good management teams looked like. Um, and then you got to also see some of the, the behind the scenes sausage making on how these companies get financed. So, you know, yeah, even though I was, you know, in some, some cases, yeah, like making copies at four in the morning. Um, it was an incredible learning experience. And then, you know, as I thought about what the alternative could be, it's like, yeah, I could be right now doing something very, you know, viscerally unpleasant in a, in a hospital at four in the morning. Right. So this is actually not that terrible a trade-off. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So how did you end up going over to industry? So after I did investment banking, so I, uh, moved to New York and worked on the, the research side of that same investment bank for a number of years, uh, and then worked actually for a couple of different hedge funds in New York, um, where I was then actually an investor in companies, so long and short. And so then, you know, the second of the major financial crises of my career occurred, which was 2008. And 2008 really got me thinking about whether or not I was enjoying doing the, um, the hedge fund uh, analyst job. Because I, I just, I, I found myself thinking, wow, at the end of my career, do I want to be someone who made something or do I want to be someone who profited from making, other people making things? And I realized I really wanted to be in the former category. And that's not to take away from people who work as hedge fund analysts or sell-side analysts. That, that is a vital, vital function. Um, and that actually is what keeps the, 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 the capital flowing to these, uh, to the startup biotechs. But I realized that there was, there, there were many aspects to my own strengths 
that I thought were not getting exploited by my time on Wall Street. You know, being a hedge fund analyst is a really analytical job, per its name. Um, but there were other things that I was good at, too. I was good at speaking. I was good at uh, persuading. I was I really wanted to lead and manage people. So, and maybe, you know, there was some way down the line that I could fold those into a career on Wall Street. But I thought, you know what? I've spent so much time covering this industry. I've learned so much about the way companies success, uh, succeed or fail. I think I could probably do a pretty good job if I could get the opportunity to work in one of these companies and maybe run something. And by the way, it's 2009 and Wall Street's looking pretty unattractive right now. So maybe I should give this a shot. Yeah, well, this is the kind of thing that, you know, is just never going to be evident to people at 22 or 24. It takes a while to figure out your own self, like what what you're good at, what you're not as good at, what you like to do. So it looked like in industry. Yeah, one of the th pieces of advice that I give to these medical students is, you know, you sometimes have to iterate. You sometimes have to try several different things that may not fully agree with you before you discover something that's good that, that you like or that you're really good at, or that ideally is a combination of both. Um, but it doesn't usually come without a little bit of experimentation, especially if you're doing a non-traditional career path. Okay, so 2009, is, around here, is where you make the move to, um, to industry. It's the Great Recession, you said. Um, and and uh, where did you go first? So I was able to get a job at uh, Millennium, which at the time had just been acquired by Takeda. That job was as an associate director in uh, the finance group at Millennium, uh, which was, and the role itself was about doing the financial modeling and analytics behind business development transactions. And, uh, you know, I was a fit for that role because of the, the, the biotech finance background that I'd had. Though, you know, I, I have to say that while I knew about how to do um, deal modeling from an investment banking perspective, it's very different on the company side. The level of detail and rigor is, is, is an order of magnitude higher. And so that took some adjustment. Um, but that millennium environment of that era, you know, people always talk about like the Mark Levin era of millennium as, as the golden age. But I would argue that millennium had a couple of different golden ages. And, and in the era where, um, you know, uh, Deborah Dunsire, uh, Christoph Bianchi, Anna Protopapas, uh, and others were leading that organization, Nancy Simonian. Um, that was a fantastic place to be and a fantastic place to work. There were some outstanding leaders in that organization, and the, the company ha had maintained the, the learning culture uh, and that sort of biotech -y dynamism from the pre-Takeda days, but all performed at a, at a highly professional level. So I got in there. I was very lucky to have some senior leaders who were willing to give me opportunities. And, and actually, the, the, the number one thing that I was lucky in was on my first week, I asked somebody, what's the key to success around here? And they said, well, actually, the key to success at Millennium is stick your hand up when somebody says, hey, I need to do something, but I need someone to help me do it. And just stick your hand up and say, hey, listen, I'll give that a shot, even if you know nothing about it. And then good things will happen. So I got to work on a whole uh, swath of business development transactions um, that 
opened my eyes to the possibilities of what you can do from a business perspective to help patients. And the very first deal that I worked on was the, the licensing of the ex North America rights to, um, et cetera, what is now et cetera, which at the time was SGN 35 from Seattle Genetics. Um, a drug which has ended up being extraordinarily beneficial for patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And yeah. Seattle needed, Seattle Genetics, CGen now, needed an ex-US development and commercialization partner. Otherwise, that drug was not going to get out. And that was just a remarkable experience. And that drug has gone on to help, you know, thousands of patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma and other diseases. So, you know, that was a good place to start. I think this is an important point you make about this, the um, quality management team at a, uh, call it mid to mid to large size company at that time. I mean, they had just uh, really nailed it with Velcade. That was a, the, the millennium had matured from a platform company from the early genomics days to a product company with uh, a billion dollar blockbuster with Velcade and other things behind it. But it was still, it still had close enough to those startup roots where, like you say, you, you weren't going to get pigeonholed. You could be a, uh, you know, your title might say associate director of finance <laughs> in business development, like somewhere you could be stashed away in some cubbyhole and nobody would ever know who you are. But actually in this, in this more um, fluid kind of organization, you were able to pitch in on and learn lots of different things and, and grow as a result. Absolutely. And so that's another thing that I, that I give as a piece of advice to these medical students is that if you can find a company that, that fits that kind of um, uh, setup, that is a very, very good place to grow your career. And, and because it is large enough such that the people who are there doing their jobs are not necessarily doing things for the first time. Like somebody like at, at Celsius, which is a small growing company. Yeah, like we're submitting our first ever IND right? There's a lot of internal learning that we have to do in order to be able to do that successfully. Um, there, they had already submitted multiple INDs at Millennium, right? So they knew, they knew what was involved in that. They weren't doing things for the first time. And so you could actually, you could actually learn from the experiences of professionals and an organization that had done things many, many times, but yet it still wasn't such a big organization that, to your point, it was ossified in the way that it treated people, and it didn't provide um, experiences um, for entrepreneurial people within the organization. So you learn a lot about doing deals from the um, the the, uh, the the buy side, the acquiring company, uh, and and you're evaluating lots of cool assets, I suppose, like Etcetras and and others. Yes, and um, I what I did was so I started off in that oncology. Um, finance role, which because Millennium was the oncology part. And then I actually became the first employee to move from Millennium to parent to CADA. Uh, the first, first person actually ever to do that, to work on global and actually primarily U.S.-focused BD projects. And so there, I actually then moved away from pure finance into an actual sort of BD practitioner role. And so I led a number of transactions uh, out of their, what was then their U.S. headquarters in Deerfield, Illinois. Um, the one that I'm most proud of, actually, is the, the acquisition of that company in Virigen, which has the, uh, the vaccine for dengue that Takeda has now gotten approved outside the U.S. and I believe is still in front of the FDA in, uh, uh, here. That, if, you know, that ends up being a successful product, that will be an incredible step forward for global health. 
And, you know, being able to work on something like that was just a privilege. Some great people, too. Very, very cool. So how many years were you uh, in uh, this these industry business development roles were at Millennium, Takeda, or, or elsewhere? Like about six and a half. So after the Takeda, uh, the Takeda experience in Deerfield, I moved back to uh, back to Cambridge to lead oncology business development for um, what was then Takeda, uh, as Millennium had been sort of absorbed into the rest of Takeda. And it was a great experience with fantastic people. The, the, for me, though, the next transition occurred because as I thought about um, future things that I could work on, and, you know, I love Takeda. They had done a fantastic, they had been awesome to me, and they were great people who were thinking about the right things and definitely had the patient in mind first, which, you know, I understand is not universal among larger pharma companies. Um, I, I started thinking about what did I want to double down on? Do I want to double down on global pharmaceutical leadership for myself? Do I want to double down on uh, pharmaceutical transactions? Do I want to double down on being a part of this incredibly fascinating world of startup biotech that I find myself interacting with on a daily basis? And I picked the latter. I thought that, man, this biotech scene here in Cambridge and Boston broadly is full of incredibly interesting characters. There's astonishing amount of innovation. And I can see that this, this innovation engine appears to be turning faster and faster. Man, I should try to be part of that. So that's when I left Takeda and started working in entrepreneurial biotech. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love a subscription to Timmerman Report. This is where you can read my in-depth reports on the most interesting startups in biotech, my regular Friday Front Points column, and insightful coverage of current topics in biotech from a rotating cast of contributing writers. Go to TimmermanReport.com and click on subscribe for more. So, Tarek, I'm smiling here because I think you and I are about the same age and you know, these events coincide at similar points. You're probably about age 40 around this time, right? When, when, <laughs> when you realize that um, you can do a lot of different things, you got you know, a number of different skills, and but time is not infinite. Like it isn't like when you're 25 and you can just like, hey, throw anything at me. I'll learn anything and everything. Actually, you kind of need to choose uh, by this point and, and you want to choose wisely. Yeah. And some of us then at that point uh, decide that we're going to uh, we're going to follow the dream of, of the entrepreneurial endeavors that we've been sort of skirting around the edges of for for a long period of time. In fact, I seem to recall there being a new publication started around almost exactly that time in biotech 
um, with a with a kickoff party at the Pfizer HQ in Cambridge, if I recall correctly, Luke. <laughs> yes, this was the beginning of Timmerman Report, which is a different story. But um, but yeah, so you decide you're going to take that plunge and go to work in startups. Uh, how did uh, where did you go first? So I um, so through my time at Takeda and Millennium doing business development, I had gotten to know some of the the VC shops uh, in the United States. Um, and, you know, obviously, we've seen many examples of this recently where um, the VC firms do a pretty good job of tracking talent at pharma companies and seeing who might be interested in either uh, joining one of the portfolio companies or potentially moving in-house to the VC firm. So I had had a long-ish relationship with the folks at Atlas Venture. And Atlas, as you recall at the time, had fairly recently become a, a biotech therapeutics only shop. You know, they separated out from their, um, from their tech group uh, and really had a lot of momentum behind them. And so I was talking to them and I was talking to other groups about potential roles within portfolio companies. And I, I remember sitting down, I was having, um, I was having a meeting with uh, Peter Barrett, who's a legacy partner there now, uh, and Michael Gladstone, who is a partner there now. And they talked about this concept behind Obsidian Therapeutics. We were talking about actually a number of different companies. And, and you know, talked about one company. It's like, yeah, this one's about to go into the clinic. This other company, yeah, they've just done their Series A. Here's this other company. We're talking about doing regulated, small molecule regulated gene therapy. I said, wait, why would you want to do that? And they said, well, for CAR-T. And I thought, oh, Oh, okay. Well, what stage is this company at? Oh, it's at this point, it's just an idea, but it's a seed stage thing. But I mean, if you want to work on it, okay. It's like, yes, I want to work on this. This sounds super cool. So that's what I started working on. Now, why did you have that reaction? Because, so at Takeda, up until that point, we had taken a hard look at cell therapy and oncology, CAR-T therapies and oncology. And there were a lot of different things that needed to be better about the first generation of cell therapies. Um, but one thing that always struck me was the fact that these cell therapies, uh, the, the, the CAR T cells were kind of like these free agents, like total rogue radicals. Once you put them into the patient, they could, you know, in some patients rapidly expand, uh, in other patients go completely bonkers and cause cytokine release syndrome. In other patients, fail to thrive. And you had no control over that. The core idea of Obsidian was that by applying these little small molecule control elements to the transgenes that you put in to CAR-T or really any gene therapy, any transgene, you could actually control the activity of the cell product in the patient. And to me, that felt like the missing link so what could actually make cell therapy better? And then as you know, we thought more about it at Obsidian, we realized you could also do this as a way of, of um, uh, making TILs better or making NK cells better. So, so the, the applicability of it was really, really broad. So I, you know, when I said, yeah, I think I want to work on this, and of course at Takeda, they thought I was bonkers for, for leaving for a company that, you know, didn't barely even had a Delaware registration at the time. Uh, but it was, it was such an invigorating experience to start a biotech company from scratch. 
you know, I sat, I went, I remember this very clearly. I sat down at the, uh, in the Atlas environment and uh, they gave me a laptop and they, it's like, okay, start this company. It's like, okay, so I should probably check the bank account. Oh, we don't have a bank account yet. <laughs> okay. Do we have a finance person? No, we don't have a finance person yet. Um, okay. So I guess I got to get those up and running first, don't I? Yeah, that'd be a good idea. So, so I didn't even like, I didn't even get paid for my first two months or I did get paid, but they, uh, the, the, the partnership actually loaned me money uh, while we were getting the bank account set up for this company. And then there was, there was another scientist there, a guy named Vipin Suri, who um, was, he was an entrepreneur in residence at Atlas, and he was giving part of his time to, uh, to the Subsidian project. And he and I still um, debate about who was the actual first employee, because I was the first full-time employee, but he was, he was working on that project first. So that is one of those debates that can never be resolved. Um, but, uh, but so he and I would, you know, sit down in a conference room with a whiteboard and start mapping out, well, what experiments did we need to do? What data from the academic founder did we need to replicate in order to give ourselves confidence that this was something that could potentially move forward? And you know, I had always taken for granted a lot of the little micro decisions that actually went into the formation of a biotech company. Little things like, okay, are we going to use lab notebooks or a lab information system? Um, funnily enough, that is one of the decisions that came to me was, what color do you want the lab notebooks to be? And I was like, I have no idea. I've barely ever seen a lab notebook. Um, the other thing for me was also real education in early stage discovery. That is something that, that I had just not been exposed to, right? Starting from being a medical doctor and then on Wall Street where you're mostly investing in clinical companies or uh, looking at clinical stage companies. And then at Takeda where occasionally we'd see something that was preclinical, but, you know, their preference was always things that were more fully baked. Seeing how the, the actual research and experimental process worked, you know, going back to those grade school lessons on the scientific method, basically, um, that was a real eye-opener. And I just thank goodness that Vipin was patient enough to walk through all these things with me, you know, explaining what a fax machine was and realizing it wasn't something that you used to send letters to people overseas. Now, this might sound terrifying to some people who have never taken a startup plunge, but just as context, there was, uh, at this time, there was some early glimpses of data from uh, CAR-T from the uh, Novartis or Kite, uh, Juno. They're, I don't think these products were approved just yet, but they were clearly on their way doing incredibly powerful things. And, uh, and, and, and yet we knew that there was lots of room for improvement here along the lines of you, what you say, uh, bringing more controllability to them. And yet, and, and also here is another, I think, important insight you're touching on here is that letting go of all that structure of a big company, it, it might sound really scary, but at a moment like this, when the innovation is burgeoning so big and fast, it can be an advantage to not have all of that other legacy and structure, systems, processes, and everything. It, it, it's helpful in some cases to start with that clean sheet of paper and think from first principles, well, how would you want to do this ideally to get to that, that vision you have for these more controllable cell therapies? Definitely, definitely. The other thing that I would add to that is that the 
all-or-nothing nature of the risk in a biotech company like that concentrates the mind. The, the, you know, a project about, for example, controllable CAR-T transgenes, um, you could very imagine, you could very easily imagine somebody in a pharma company working on something like that. In fact, you know, I know of many cases where that did happen, but where the projects were abandoned after things started getting rocky. And one of the things that I think is just a theme that, you know, you hear over and over again. I mean, you hear this over and over again in your podcast conversations, Luke, is this idea that, yeah, like, we knew that we had to solve this problem, so we persevered through it. And, and that's the kind of um, dedication that you have to have to solving problems at a biotech company, whereas at a pharma company, and pharma companies are great at many, many things, right? But for this kind of innovation, because those problems aren't existential for the people at the pharma company, it's pretty it's easier to, to, to move on to something else or license that technology from a group that has sweated bullets in order to be able to, to and, and gone through the multiple existential crises that are an inevitable byproduct of the, the discovery process in order to get there. Yeah, you've got to figure it out. You've got to make it happen. Otherwise, it won't. <laughs> and, you're, you've, and you've got to find something else to do. Um, Okay, so uh, eventually you you leave. I want to touch on Celsius now. How did you come to this this company idea that you're currently at? Yeah, so um, at Obsidian, we were able to build this from that like initial PowerPoint deck into a real company that had like 40 people. We did a very significant deal with Celgene. I don't think the financials have been re uh, revealed publicly. But that was a, a major transaction that set up Obsidian for success in the future. Uh, and so I started thinking, okay, this is great. I had a very early startup experience um, that is, you know, doing, the company's doing well. It might be time for me to think about doing something else. I had started talking to the folks at Third Rock Ventures about potentially being a leader in one of their companies. And Third Rock had, you know, a very different process for company creation than Atlas. Um, definitely something that is much more structured and formalized. And that also seemed appealing to me to be able to see, well, how is it done on the other side of the fence, right? I learned about Celsius from uh, Christoph Lengauer. He was the first person who really gave me an in-depth briefing into it. And so Christoph, as you may know, is the former chief scientific officer at Blueprint Medicines, where he was one of the real pioneers in small molecule targeted oncology, right? And you've, you've seen that we've had this, you know, plethora of really successful uh, therapeutics in targeted oncology. And the core idea of Celsius that he had and that we still follow to this day is, well, okay, these kinds of targeted therapeutics are great when there is a druggable driver lesion, right? Like you see in certain mut mut uh, cancer mutants and I get in rare genetic disease, that's, that's the same, same general concept. But that still leaves the vast majority of disease where there isn't an obvious druggable genetic correlate. And specifically in inflammatory bowel disease, we have nothing like that. Despite this being, an, you know, the, the burden of disease being incredible and years and years of GWAS not really revealing patient subsets, maybe helping us around the targets, but, but is there a way that we can actually understand these diseases better. And I, you know, I, it actually brought me back to medical school. 
because I remember once one of the, the, the hospitals that I was stationed at had a large practice in inflammatory bowel disease. And I remember um, being with a physician at the bedside of a patient with ulcerative colitis. And, and the physician said to me, you know, here's the thing about ulcerative colitis. It's probably five different diseases, but it, with a final sort of common pathophysiological pathway. And we have no idea how to unpack what those different diseases are. But I am convinced that there's heterogeneity in here. And with Celsius, it was the first time that I'd heard about an approach that made sense to me to be able to unpack that heterogeneity. So that got me really interested. This notion that there's not one single gene driving that disease phenotype, there just isn't. There's, there can be multiple contributors, perhaps, several different genes and several different cell types, or there's environmental influences, there's, there's the interactions with the microbiome. There's a lot going on here that drives what the physician sees and calls Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis you know, under the umbrella of inflammatory bowel. And, and the idea that you can uh, gather different kinds of information, biological information, beyond just the underlying genomics, but like these layers of information, to help you more precisely define what is really underneath this and, and driving it so that we can then <laughs> come up with an intervention to, to uh, you know, treat the disease better. Yeah, and, so, and, and this is exactly right. Like, so, so you're, you're doing a fine job of giving the Celsius pitch, Luke. The, 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 the thing is, is that up until now, we haven't had great tools to explore that space between the genetics and the clinical, clinical phenotype. But that's the real innovation that has happened over the last 10 years and that that gave rise to Celsius. So specifically single-cell genomics, so uh, single-cell RNA sequencing, which allows us to create a census of cells in a tissue sample, de-average uh, that sample and actually understand what each cell is doing and then actually compare that across populations by using tissue samples that we get from a variety of sources. Pause here a little bit, Tarek. So for people who are not familiar, like the old way of gathering genomic information was you would take a sample and there would be lots and lots of cells in that sample and then they all kind of get ground up uh, and put through the sequencing machine and then reassembled and put together. And the result that you get is um, an average of um, what's there. <laughs> That's right. And so specifically in this case, we're talking about RNA and, and RNA transcripts, right? So because you're looking to see gene expression. And so if you take that sample exactly as you described, mush it up and, uh, and do what we call bulk RNA sequencing, Yes, you get the average gene expression across the entirety of that tissue sample. But, you know, just thinking, let's say, in the case of oncology, right, that doesn't give you a clue as to, for example, okay, maybe there's some T cells in that tumor that are, that are quiet. Well, why are they quiet? And what are those T cells actually doing that's keeping them quiet? That's what you miss when you do, the, when you do bulk RNA sequencing. But by doing single-cell RNA sequencing, the, the intervening step that occurs before the, the actual sequencing itself is dissociation. So all the cells get dissociated, 
And then using microfluidic systems, we can actually get an individual transcriptome for each cell. Now what you can do is actually um, from see, and I put that in quote marks because it's more like you're, you're understanding what an individual cell might be doing in that context of the T cell. You can say, okay, I can see that this T cell is not active right now. What factors is it secreting or not secreting compared to a, an activated T cell? And what are some of the things that I could do in order to make it more active? It's kind of like looking at both the forest and the trees. That's right. And so, but this is then where the electronics get into place because I certainly have a tough time looking at forest and trees, but computers can do that a little bit more easily. So a, a technique like this generates a crazy amount of data. And so you need computational help to be able to clean up, analyze, and interpret these data sets that we generate. So, Tarek, you've got this tool that enables you to see things a little differently uh, in terms of the biology, like a, a, a higher level of resolution, I guess you could say. Uh, how did you think about using this in a company, like building a company around this technical capability? Yeah, so, <clears throat> and I think part of where you're going with that is like a technology or a way of understanding biology does not necessarily equal a company in and of itself. So what, but, but at the same time, as we've seen in the past, advances in analytical techniques have often led to new biologic discoveries that were highly relevant, right? Think about the, you know, the, 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 the dawn of sequencing or the, the broader use of in situ hybridization that then leads to drugs like Herceptin, for example. So, for us, what we really wanted to do from day one is use this platform and use this approach to be able to identify new targets and potential patient populations, because we're starting with that human data, in diseases where there's unmet medical need and no precision medicines. And so that's what led us to inflammatory bowel disease, but also to uh, immuno-oncology. And so in each case, that's where we've been gathering samples. That's where we've been looking for targets. That's where we've been exploring partnerships. So I think Christoph Lengauer, previously at Third Rock, one of the co-founders of the company, has put this, uh, described it as precision medicine, but uh, not just limited to kind of underlying genetic driver mutations. It's thinking about precision medicine, uh, but with these bringing these other types of data to bear. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly the vision of Celsius. And that's good that our founder said that because that's also what we believe. The, um, the, the thing is, is that it's like there's, there's, <clears throat> we all know that precision medicine has been extraordinarily successful in targeted oncology, but that still leaves about 70% of tumors where there isn't a, a, a druggable driver mutation. And there aren't these kinds of smoking gun mutations in inflammatory bowel disease or other uh, inflammatory indications that you can precisely target. So we need to understand the disease at a different level to kind of get in the space in between uh, genetics and clinical phenotype, that cellular landscape of disease where a lot of the action is happening. And up until now, we just haven't had the tools to do that. But the single cell genomics really enables us to be able to see in this compartment that was previously invisible. And so using this approach with 
a lot of actual human clinical tissue samples, we can start to unpack some of the intricacies of these complex diseases. That's the core vision okay. of Celsius. Okay, this is a really important point. The, you use human samples. They are the essential grist for the mill. Uh, you, how do you get your samples? Where do they come from? Uh, th these were like critical tasks for getting the company up and running, right? Absolutely. And that's a really important part of what we do. So the tissue samples that we have are from patients with inflammatory bowel disease or solid tumors. We get these samples through our own collaborations that we've signed with academic institutions globally. And in each case, we've formed tight relationships with the investigators, and we're getting samples in a fully compliant fashion. I think we're one of the few small biotechs that's actually GDPR compliant because of this, um, with clin <coughs> clinical metadata. So we actually have basic de uh, demographic information on these patients. We know whether the, the patient was a responder or a non-responder to whatever drug they were on. In some cases, we actually get orthogonal data like um, TCR or uh, genetics. This allows us to tie that clinical phenotype with what we see at the single cell level. And we can say, hey, listen, in responders to therapy, we see one cell population. In non-responders to therapy, we see a different cell population. What's going on in that cell population? And what can we do to perturb those systems? That's the core idea of what we're doing. And you're absolutely right. I mean, for us, those samples, that is the raw material. That is like, you know, the spice of life. Um, and, and, and obtaining those samples is not a simple process, but it's something that I think is actually highly differentiating for us. Um, and it's a unique approach. The other advantage to it, there's two other advantages to it. One is we know right away that the biology we see from these human tissue samples is relevant because, well, it's actually from humans rather than a model system of some kind. Um, <clears throat> and second of all, those tissue samples give us a head start in thinking about patient populations early on, because in some cases we can actually see differences in between the patients from whom we're getting the samples. How many uh, of these partnerships do you have and how many samples have you been able to lay your hands on? Because, I mean, to, to do this kind of big data analysis, uh, it, it helps to have more and more data, more and more samples. And as you mentioned, they're, they're precious. They're hard to come by. Definitely. Where, where, where are you at? Yeah, so we right now have over a dozen agreements with academic institutions globally. And those agreements, in many cases... We've formed good relationships with the academic institutions, so we've actually had multiple collaborations around, for example, different tumor types uh, with the same academic institution. An example of that is uh, Institut Gustave Roussy in France. I think we actually have three different collaborations going on with them simultaneously in different tumor types. Um, and then in terms of the total number of samples that we have, right now it has just about crested the 1,500 mark, uh, which corresponds to you know, millions and millions of cells. Uh, and obviously a lot, a lot of data. So that's where the other part of the platform comes in, which is the, the algorithms that we've had to build in-house in order to be able to, to clean up, analyze, and interpret these massive data sets. Now, why do you think these academic partners are willing to trust you? You're a little private company backed by a venture firm, 
probably never heard of you. <laughs> uh, do, what are you providing back to them? So a couple of things. First of all, um, we, despite our relative invisibility, uh, we actually are very well pedigreed in the world of single cell genomics. Uh, our, our key company founder was Aviv Ragev, who really pioneered many of the, the, the approaches in single cell genomics. So right away that there, there's a little bit of validation from who's involved in the company. So that's, that's part one. Um, but what the academics get is actually access to the raw data. And so that they can use the raw data for their own research and publication purposes, we get to use the raw data to identify targets and ultimately develop drugs. And they don't have to go through the expense or hassle or complexity of doing the single-cell genomics work because single-cell RNA sequencing is a finicky, expensive, and bespoke process that requires a decent amount of throughput and a lot of care and attention in order to make sure your processes are consistent. And we've done all that work. And so if you discover a new target, I mean, they benefit in that they get to publish the finding in some peer-reviewed journal, and you guys get to start a program to develop a drug against it. I, I presume there's some kind of time lag here. Like, uh, uh, you know, you, you don't want to tip your hand too soon to your competitors on, on what you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the most important thing, I mean, the academic investigators get to have access to the raw data to be able to identify and publish on really whatever they want. Um, our drug discovery activities are independent of the investigator. Um, and so when the investigator is doing their analyses, like they're publishing, we, we may publish. We're actually planning on submitting some abstracts to some congresses uh, for the spring. You know, we'll, we'll reference the fact that we built this data set in collaboration with the investigator. But beyond that, you know, they're not necessarily on our papers and we're not necessarily on theirs. Okay. Okay. So what is your lead application at this point, your lead pipeline program? So the lead program is an antibody directed towards the target TREM1 for inflammatory bowel disease. And that project is called Cell 383. And we got to that program through our platform approach. We have a, a sample collaboration with Oxford University that's, uh, that's built to patients with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, receiving Humira as first-line biologics therapy. And we analyzed their uh, myeloid populations to look to see what the differences were between responders and non-responders to anti-TNF therapy. And we found that there's a certain cell population that's super tightly correlated with inflammation and it's super tightly correlated with resistance to anti-TNF therapies. And TREM1 as a target is a receptor that we think is actually sustaining this pro-inflammatory state of this particular cell population. So by blocking this, we think that we can actually interrupt a cycle of continued, repeated, exaggerated inflammation in the gut of patients with IBD. So are you thinking that your antibody would be administered in tandem with Humira? Uh, not yet. Our you know, initial clinical studies will be as a single agent. Uh, but you know, I think the world is moving towards combination therapies and inflammation indications. So that's something that we definitely have to think about and that we're going to be designing plans for long term. Okay. So how far along is this program in development? So we are planning on putting that into the clinic in the first part of next year. 
We are right now working through the GLP talk studies. We're preparing for FDA correspondence. We are putting the finishing touches on our um, pharmacokinetic modeling for when we go into the clinic. And then we'll start with a, a healthy volunteer study in the first part of next year and then flip into a phase two efficacy study uh, as soon as that phase one study is done. Okay, so you're going to start getting your first glimpse at uh, human data uh, with uh, with your lead program in 2023. Uh, are you thinking that uh, you're primarily going to be making antibodies or targeted biologics uh, against these targets, or do you have other tools in the toolbox you know, based on what your discovery platform is telling you? Yeah, the platform itself is modality agnostic. And in fact, we've got a partnership with Servier uh, around new targets in colorectal cancer, where we're helping them identify new targets that could be good for antibodies, that could be good for small molecules, could be good for whatever. Um, right now, internally, we have the capabilities for antibodies. Um, I think they're, they're a great way of demonstrating clean biological proof of concept. Um, and so for now, we're sticking with antibodies for our own internal programs. But in the future, we may change that. You mentioned this partnership with Servier. I think you're a couple years in on research collaboration. How, how's that going? It's going really well. So in a press release that we put out uh, maybe about six or nine months ago, we did say that we'd achieved the first set of milestones in that collaboration. Uh, we haven't publicly disclosed anything after that, but I can definitely say the partnership has gone really well. The the core idea of that partnership is that we are identifying novel targets in colorectal cancer. And the fact that we've made progress in that collaboration, I think, really validates the approach that we're taking. We're seeing new things that other people haven't seen or published on before that could potentially be impactful in, in CRC. Yeah, and I would refer listeners back to a previous podcast that I did with David Lee of Servier. Um, gosh, I couple years ago, I think, where he talked about France-based company and uh, really making its move into oncology in the U.S., both commercially and in research and development. So that was one of those strategic moves that they made. <laughs> and I think you saw, you saw, oh, maybe here's a potential partner. <laughs> maybe we can work together. Actually, their acquisition of the Agios oncology business, if I recall correctly, was <clears throat> almost contemporaneous with our uh, completion of our transaction with them. And so it's very clear that they wanted to build an oncology presence um, that had, you know, a certain, you know, commercial aspect, a development aspect, but then also an early innovative research aspect. And that's where we fit in. What's it going to take, you think, before um, the tools that you have become more widely adopted across pharmaceutical R&D enterprises? What's, what's it going to take? So let's just parse that a little bit, though, because... As we think about the tools, so what are the tools? It's the single-cell genomics process itself, but then also the, the massive and proprietary sample libraries and the algorithms that you need then to actually cope with all that data. So single-cell genomics is already making inroads into the labs at pharmas and biotechs. What's very different, though, and this is one of the things that I think makes Celsius really unique, is the scale at which we're doing it on those human samples. And what we've heard as we've talked to pharma companies is that while they have the, the single cell tools in-house, it is a real bottleneck to get clinical samples. 
Um, and it's hard to actually have the, the dedication and the, the long-term effort required to either create partnerships with academic institutions like we have, or even internally within pharma companies to be able to obtain samples from ongoing clinical trials of their own drugs. Um, you know, people not wanting to rock the boat on ongoing or planned clinical trials, understandably. So um, while the, the process may already be infiltrating broadly into the industry, the, the raw material is very different. And so we think that that's a, a nice competitive advantage for us that will sustain for some time. Is there also a data hygiene issue? Like y- you obtain the data, but then y- it needs to like talk to each other. <laughs> These multiple modes of data, they, they need to be, you know, the care needs to be taken. You can't just like run the experiment and then sit it off in the corner and not like integrate it properly. Yeah. And so that's one of the things. So there, there's two, two aspects to that that I'll point out. So one is you're absolutely right, right? Every incremental piece of data that we get actually then relates to existing data we have and makes the, and, and increases the value and relevance of our data sets. That's really key. And of course, as, as I mentioned earlier, as we get orthogonal data sets, like in addition to the single cell RNA sequencing, we might get, um, you know, T cell receptor data or genetic data. All of that ties in to create this kind of multidimensional data set. So that's really, really helpful. Um, but the other thing that you're touching on that's actually a little bit upstream of this. So one of the reasons why we wanted to build our own library of clinical samples, even though there's quite a few of them available publicly that you can download, is the data quality and the 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 cleanliness and hygiene, for example, of the inclusion criteria for the patients. In each case, with our collaborations, it's a super homogeneous group of patients. We know exactly what disease they have. We know exactly what line of therapy they're on. Um, whereas with many of these publicly available data sets, they're a bit more of a grab bag. And if we're trying to identify targets with a high degree of precision, well, we would like to have as homogeneous a population as possible. So there's data hygiene and data interconnectivity at the front end and, like you were suggesting, also at the back end. This whole approach just doesn't sound like it lends itself to like an easy bolt-on to the way somebody else does their their research or has done it for the last 10 years. It seems like something that you do kind of need to rethink from first principles with the clean sheet of paper and like start from the ground up as, as you guys have done. Yeah, I think you need to be dedicated. You need to be dedicated to it from the get go, and you also need to, you know, not throw in the towel when the going gets tough. I mean, as you alluded to, it's not the easiest thing in the world to sign a dozen agreements with academic institutions globally, right? I mean, people tear their hair out over one. Um, it was not an easy thing at all to do to industrialize the single cell genomics processes, which, as I mentioned earlier, are super finicky and complex and actually create a workflow that can do hundreds of samples a month. No one's ever done that before. Um, but, you know, I, I just, I have this overriding memory of, you know, we were talking about Christoph Lengauer earlier. Um, you know, he and I, once we were seeing a presentation uh, of a scientist, by a scientist um, who was identifying targets by looking at mouse models of disease, and 
And we just, you know, looked at each other and said, oh man, this is, this is not the future. Like the future is going to be to start with the humans. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. You start with the humans, you generate your hypothesis, and then of course you're still going to use the animal models uh, to test them. Uh, but, but, you know, but you can speed up that process before, to get yourself into, you know, live human patients again. That's right. I mean, the, 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 the relevance of actual human tissue and human biologic information, to me, I think, dominates, um, dominates the research approach that we have. That's such an important component of what we're doing. Now, one thing um, I'll, I'll just close with, uh, I had an article I think you saw from contributing writer Anika Gupta at Harvard about the, the single cell revolution that's happening. And she quoted, I think it was Anthony Filipakis at GV uh, and the Broad Institute, where he said, you know, this field is kind of still looking for its PCSK9 moment, um, where, you know, that was a, a story where, you know, the underlying genetics were clear and they led to the downstream disease phenotype and you could head it with an antibody or some other therapeutic mo- uh, intervention and, and get the cholesterol down and help people with heart disease. Like that's just all tied together so nicely from biology through through clinical uh, phenotype and then, you know, ultimate outcome improvement in people's lives. Um, this is just um, a, a different manifestation of precision medicine, I guess you could say, that that has not yet had <laughs> that really big home run success story that everybody can point to and say, yep, that's how to do it. And that's how we want to do it too. Um, <laughs> what, is, is that how you think this field is going to um, evolve someday? Is that what it's, and is that what it's going to take really for us to kind of r- begin to harness some of the tools that, that you've been talking about today. Yeah. I would just say that, that, you know, the PCSK9 success story was built on decades of work and, and, and decades of precedent in, in looking at genetics. Uh, where we are right now is really in the infancy of this kind of approach of using the single cell genetics on tissue, single cell genomics on, on uh, our, uh, RNA sequencing and really understanding cell populations. So, I do like to believe that we are on that track, but of course we're still pretty early on it. But you know, heck, you know, and if I, you know, if I'm dreaming at night, what I'm dreaming of is that some of the things that we're working on or that we've identified have the potential to to be like PCSK9 in the sense that they were identified using this uh, innovative new approach that also could potentially be used to identify other things that, that could benefit patients. So I, I. I, and Anthony's uh, Anthony's uh, on our board. Uh, he's an investor in Celsius, and so um, it's something we talk about a lot. I think that PCSK9 moment is coming, though. There's a lot of people using single cell genomics. There's a lot of um, incorporation of these techniques now into uh, research workflows. Yes, I think that we're unique in, in having sample access, um, but this is an approach that I think has a lot of potential for identifying new targets. And I think we're going to, you're going to start to hear more about these targets and about the fruits of this approach in the coming years. The tools are pretty amazing. And it's also about how we use them. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, I think that that's well, well put. Great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tark. Thank you, Luke. Very, very happy to have been invited. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.